You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of 17th Century Warfare is brought to you by... 1956. If you weren't aware, 1956 is our exclusive Patreon series, which you can access for $5 a month. Those $5 will get you two extra episodes every month, and starting from September, you will be able to access two episodes of the Suez Crisis every month. If you haven't heard of the Suez Crisis, it's probably the most suitable event in history for us to ever look at in the When Diplomacy Fails format, that is. Well, apart from maybe the War of the League of Cambrai, but we can't always be as lucky as that war. Anyway, the Suez Crisis is a fascinating event in history, wherein the Israelis, the French, the British, and, in some respects, the Americans, tried or did not try to get involved. And, yeah, I mean, you really can't even look at the Middle East today without considering that event. You can't look at what the British behaved like after 1956 without looking at the Suez Crisis because it engendered a real different way of looking at the empire and Britain's place in the world. So I hope you'll join me for that. I should remind you, of course, that there will be two episodes released of the Suez Crisis to kind of give us a feeling for what to expect from it. So if you're cautiously on the sidelines deciding whether or not to part with your fiver i would really encourage you to listen to those two episodes and see if they stroke your fancy if not 
I would just like you to listen to them anyway and enjoy, and let me know what you thought either way through the usual channels. At the moment, guys, I am on holidays in Malta, but because I love you, and because I'm too OCD to abandon my schedule, I just planned ahead. I did that thing where you make a plan and you stick to it, and lo and behold, here is this episode. I did want to let you know that because it is because you guys have been supporting me so well for so long through Patreon that I am able to go on holidays with my very patient wife, and I have to say, obviously, I really, really appreciate it. I'm sure at the moment I'm probably relaxing beside the pool or perhaps looking at some old ruin from the Knights of St. John or perhaps even a bomb crater from the Second World War. Anna may think that she's going on a relaxing holiday, but in reality, this is a glorified outdoor museum walk. So I'm very, very excited. And uh, yes, I will see you all at the end of it, of course. But if you're messaging me or anything and I haven't gotten back to you, that's probably why. I've turned off all the phones, turned off all the email, turned off pretty much everything. But once I return, I will get back to you in time. Anyway, enough rambling. Thanks for listening to When Diplomacy Fails, guys. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to our seventh installment of the Thirty Years' War series on 17th Century Warfare. In the previous episode, we saw how the Ottomans had been unfairly judged for their technological innovations or lack thereof, and how the idea that the West was supreme from the late 1600s onwards was not an entirely fair one either. In this episode, we finally get down to business though, and examine one key innovation in warfare which so impacted the continent in years to come, the emergence of the mass volley musket drill, its origins and what Europeans thought about it, and subsequently gained from it. This examination will continue in the next episode, but for now, let me take you to an unlikely place to begin this tale of European advancement, the mysterious island of Japan in the mid-16th century. Fifteen forty three was a special year for Japan. It was in that year that a Portuguese vessel, carrying some adventuring vagabonds armed with arquebusiers in the highly valued Portuguese style, made landfall at Tanegashima, forever changing that island's method of making war. Incredibly enough, while they were only new to the technology, the state of civil war within Japan and the keen desire on the part of each of the competing warlords to best their opponents meant that innovation with these muskets became the order of the day. While the 1.2 metre smoothbore Portuguese muskets could fire a 20 gram ball, the commissioning of these new weapons alone could not win any warlord the war for Japan. This was Sengoku, the warring states period of Japanese history, and pitted nobles, families and ambitious generals against one another for control of all of Japan. Through these trials between 1467 to 1603, Japanese warlords discovered what in Europe was already well known, that muskets had potential, but that they were unwieldy, inaccurate, and had an underwhelming rate of fire. When pressed against archers or the samurai, musket men with their expensive new weapons would be cut to pieces. And yet, the desire for victory and total power moved certain warlords to stick with this European system. They would not improve its design, that is the actual design of the weapon, but they would improve how it was used. 
Oda Nobunaga can be credited with employing one of the most significant innovations in the history of gunpowder warfare, even though you've probably never heard of him. The idea of volley fire for muskets, where a unit of musketeers several ranks deep would fire by each rank, and where each expended musket would be reloaded in the back of the unit as the next rank fired its weapon, was about as critical an innovation in warfare as was possible for the late 1500s. Incredible, then, that it first appeared in Japan, the nation most known for its use of the samurai sword. Yet the Japanese employment of volley fire was a reaction to the primacy of the sword and the archer. Much like their European counterparts, musketeers were vulnerable to being cut to pieces while they reloaded. It was Oda Nobugana's idea to adopt the volley fire tactics of archers, so that a missile of some kind was always in the air. The idea netted him a spectacular victory at the Battle of Nagashino in 1575, where his 3,000 musketeers decisively defeated the enemy, armed mostly with disorganised musketeers, heavy cavalry and melee infantry. The message had been sent and received loud and clear. The Portuguese weapons clearly had more potential than even the Portuguese themselves had realised. And now that a better method for emphasising the strengths of the musket had been found, it was only a matter of time before the idea caught on. By 1638, during the final military engagements of Japan's government for two centuries, government forces contained armies which boasted 30% musketeers, all trained in the tactic of firing by rank. Training had been made possible because in the years since the Battle of Nagashino in 1575, firearm schools began to pop up across Japan, and incredibly detailed scrolls and manuscripts explaining the best tactics to be employed, the infantry drill, exploded in popularity and number. Japan is rarely associated with technological innovation in this way. When we think of Japanese history, we're often led to the image of Commodore Perry appearing outside of Japan in 1867 and threatening to blow the paper towns of Japan to smithereens unless the native government open up for Western trade. Incredible as it sounds, though, it is entirely possible, given the diffusion of ideas in early modern Europe, that the concept of fire by rank and of organised volleys in general was reported by the Portuguese back to their European masters, where it gained a preeminence all of its own in the 1590s. So groundbreaking was the Japanese innovation that Geoffrey Parker has written. Volley fire was invented twice in the 16th century, in Japan during the 1560s and in the Dutch Republic in the late 1590s. The development of mass volley fire and its acceptance in Europe, regardless of how important the Japanese example was, or if it was indeed known, is something to behold. Europeans have been throwing around ideas of changing up the disorganised, every-man-for-himself style of musket fire in the second half of the 1500s for several years, and thanks to the Dutch revolt against Spain, such ideas were liable to be experimented with. Fighting over fortified towns in a relatively compact region of Europe, the ingredients were present in the Netherlands, as they had been present in Japan for some innovative ideas to be birthed and developed on the battlefield. In 1579, Thomas Diggs, an English man in Dutch military service, wrote his own military treaties and put forward his idea of volley fire in the following way, writing that musketeers should After the old Roman manner, make three or four several fronts, with convenient spaces for the first to retire and unite himself with the second, and both these, if occasion so require, with the third, the shot, having their convenient lanes continually during the fight to discharge their pieces.
Diggs imagined a group of 25 men in each case, in sequence, so as the head shall be sure to always have charged their muskets before the tail have discharged, and this in a circular match, the skirmish all day continued. Indeed, the plan which appears so obvious to us now was the cutting edge of ingenuity and innovation in the final years of the 16th century. The idea that men could be properly organised to fire according to a prearranged pattern to a drill was something close to revolutionary. Two years later, Diggs released an updated version of his treaties, this time with the idea that the men at the front would fire and the ranks behind them would pass forward loaded muskets and reload them as they were fired, meaning that everyone stood still and could theoretically be more accurate. As if to answer this challenge, a Spaniard who had spent two decades fighting the Dutch developed similar ideas, and in 1592 this Spaniard put forward the idea that three ranks of five musketeers could fire and alternate the loaded pieces, which would make these smaller units more flexible and easier for the melee troops to protect. Of critical importance was the fact that neither Diggs nor his Spanish counterpart could suggest any means by which these men could be trained. There was no concept of a regular training regimen, let alone a military drill to hone the art of firing by rank. In 1594, though, a letter sent by William Lodwick, the governor of the Dutch province of Friesland, to Maurice of Nassau, the famed military commander of the House of Orange, changed everything. After consulting the classics during his evening reading, a tactic not unusual for military leaders of early modern Europe on the hunt for some inspiration, Ludwig happened upon a tactic discussed by the Roman military theorist Alien in his great work Tactitia from around 100 AD, which itself had been preserved by Byzantine scholars from the 9th century. Above all, Ludwig focused on Alien's discussion of several types of volley fire, in which ranks of infantry advanced, hurled spears and javelins in sequence, and then retired, a tactic known as the counter-march. The idea of firing a weapon, or in Alien's case, throwing the projectile and then retiring and allowing another rank to do so while you were recovered, had never been properly considered for use with firearms. With a musket, the musketeers would aim and fire their weapons as well as they could, with few goals other than avoiding the cavalry of the enemy and being as accurate as possible. There was little effort to coordinate between the ranks of musketeers, and to fire at the same time as archers would have done. Nor was there any effort to arrange any kind of system whereby one group would fire while another waited or reloaded, with the act being swapped around as the battle progressed. Again, it sounds simple to us, but the idea was even a bit controversial in Lodovic's time because of what it would involve. The counter-march, the idea that the infantry that had expended their weapons would march in an orderly queue to the back of the unit, sounded at worst like a recipe for getting your men killed, and at best, it looked like you were retreating and walking away from the enemy, which was the height of dishonour. Yet, William Lodwick seemed to have a bee in his bonnet about the whole thing, and he wrote to Maurice of Nassau in December 1594, saying, I have discovered... A method of getting the musketeers and soldiers armed with the arquebusers, not only to keep firing very well, but to do it effectively in battle order. That is to say, they do not skirmish or use the cover of hedges. And in the following manner, as soon as the first rank is fired together, then by the drill they have learned, they will march to the back. The second rank, either marching forward or standing still, will next fire together, and then march to the back. After that, the third and following ranks will do the same. Thus, before the last ranks have fired, the first will have reloaded, 
As the following diagram shows, these little dots show the route of the ranks as they leave after firing. That's right, as that extract shows, Governor Lodwick even drew Maurice of Nassau a diagram to show him what he meant, just in case it wasn't clear. Lodwick is an interesting guy, and he was rather sensitive about the whole idea, and that it would make him look bad, and he admitted that it was proving difficult to train the men effectively in the new style. He asked Maurice of Nassau not to discuss or practice the style of fire by rank in public, because it may cause and give occasion for people to laugh. Please do it only in private and with friends. Evidently, Lodwick was a man fearful that his ideas would cost him, yet he remained convinced that they did hold water. He had been given great inspiration from the recently translated works of Alien by Justus Lipsius, who translated several Latin works into Dutch in the 1580s, including these works where the Byzantine Emperor Leo VIII recorded at length his admiration for the tactics used by Alien in the Golden Age of Rome. Justus Lipsius, the classical scholar who had translated these works and tied them together in six accessible books in 1590, wrote an entire section on how contemporary European rulers could learn from the wars described by classical authors. As a scholar obsessed with the classical method of doing things, Justus Lipsius saw 16th century infantry in the same light as the infantry of Rome. These infantrymen were the true battle winners. They would do the legwork and they would win the day through their extensive training and expertise. Lipsius argued that modern infantry must learn to operate in smaller units, like Roman maniples, as well as to drill with their arms in unison and to march in line with their peers, just as Roman armies had done. In all battles, Lipsius asserted, skill and drill, rather than numbers and raw courage, normally bring victory. William Lodwick devoured Justus Lipsius's six translated books, and he dwelled for some time on the section on ancient warfare under Rome and what modern commanders could learn from it. As a commander with a body of men at his disposal, Lodwick was in an ideal position to test these ideas out, but as we saw, he was wary of what other people might think of him. He was not so wary that he kept quiet, though. Lodwick wrote to his secretary regularly, who later recalled his master's obsession with the new approach to gunpowder warfare saying, Seeing that the ancient art of war and the benefits of battle order and speed of wheeling, reversing, turning, closing and extending ranks and files without breaking, with which the Greeks and Romans had accomplished such splendid deeds, had vanished from the world and were buried in forgetfulness, and since he would find no veteran colonels and captains from whom he could learn it, William Lodwick made use of all the leisure allowed by the enemy who kept him busy, to search out what he could from old books, especially the writings of the Greek Emperor Leo, and therefore constantly drilled his regiment, making long and thin units instead of great squares, and training them to manoeuvre in various ways. Over the next year, his curiosity perhaps getting the better of him, Maurice of Nassau met with Lodwick, and the two men discussed and attempted to set out in practice this drill. Of great interest, perhaps obsession would be the better term, was the behaviour of the Romans to the two men. Maurice and Lodwick continued to experiment with some amusing results. Lodwick always thought the end result too messy and uncoordinated in comparison to the legendary organisation and invincibility of the Roman legion, but with gunpowder weaponry this time round. This despite the fact that some Dutch contemporaries believed muskets to only be a passing fad. Incredibly enough, the tactics and weapons of the Romans were held in such high regard that some of the advice Maurice and Lodwick received 
could be summarised as a return to the roots of ancient warfare, where pikemen, catapults and heavy cavalry dominated. These bizarre pieces of advice, thankfully, were not fully absorbed by either man, yet they still found it difficult to get the results they wanted out of these drills. Again, while consulting the classics, Lodwig attempted to discern what it was that had made infantry in the classical era so formidable, and how their military drill could be emulated for modern times. In discussions with Maurice, Lodwig centred upon the example of Cannae, the seismic defeat in Roman history which saw a smaller Carthaginian army massacre its far larger counterpart in Hannibal's greatest victory. Maurice was interested in this example and what the Dutch infantry could learn from it, so Lodwig offered to get to work. He first consulted the standard Latin translation of the detailed account of the battle in Polybius's Roman histories, but he wanted something more detailed than this. Apparently, with little else to occupy him, Lodwig decided to commission an entirely new translation of the Canny passage, which shed more light on how Hannibal had fought and won. The investment seemed to do the trick, because in April 1595, William Lodwig was able to send Maurice a copy of the new translation, his calculations, and some sketches of the probable battle order with a short treatise on the subject, which naturally cast the Dutch as the victorious Carthaginians, and the Spaniards as the annihilated Romans. The following August, in 1595, with the drills that those classical infantry engaged in more clearly spelled out, Maurice and Lodwig oversaw several weeks' worth of drilling of the Freeland garrison, as the men were put through their paces. The aim was to inculcate in the men the strategy of firing and walking to the back of the line, but also to generally operate more fluidly and with greater cohesion and cooperation together. Maurice and Lodwig wished to accustom the troops both to moving in unison and to seeing musketeers appear to retreat in the face of the enemy, which was no easy feat for men used to associating such tactics with defeat. Yet these lessons were repeated over and over during the months of autumn 1595, until this version of the drill became standard. Four years later, by 1599, this tactic of drilling had spread across the Dutch Republic. And according to an eyewitness in The Hague, the new recruits, the Dutch army, assemble two or three times a week to learn to keep rank, to change step, to wheel and march like soldiers. And if a captain did not give or understand the command, His Majesty, Maurice of Nassau that is, told him and sometimes showed him how to do it properly. Maurice was on his way towards creating something special, and already parallels between his drilling and the Romans were being made. While they drilled with pikes, the Dutch soldiers were referred to as Pedit Hastati, in reference to the Hastati infantry of Republican Rome fame. These Hastati were intended to be in Rome's front lines and to contain the new recruits and youngest men, and Maurice seemed content to follow some of these ideas as well. The newly drilled and Romanized Dutch militia and professional armies would be given a baptism in fire through an ambitious campaign which very nearly annihilated the fledgling innovations which Maurice and William Lodwig had helped to nurture. A big test was necessary if the Dutch were to put their drilled forces into action and to demonstrate the worth of this new system, not to mention justify the obsession with the countermarch and drill ideas which Lodwig and Maurice had embraced. In the course of 1598, Maurice did more than simply revolutionise the way which his soldiers trained, he also altered significantly the composition of his military companies by adding in a great deal more firepower. From this point forward in Dutch military strategy, each company would contain a total of 135 men. 
This included 13 officers and 2 pages, 45 pikemen, 44 arquebusiers, and 30 musketeers. The inclusion of the two different types of firearm has the potential to cause confusion, so it'll be useful to clarify the differences between the two weapons before we go any further. Generally speaking, arquebusiers, sometimes called harquebuses, were smaller handheld firearms, while muskets tended to be larger and had been devised to puncture armour with their larger calibre. Because of their larger length and weight, muskets tended to come equipped with a fork for balance, which could be stuck into the ground to anchor the musket, but it was also perfectly possible for an arquebusier to make use of the fork as well. To complicate the picture even further, the calibre was added into the mix, which was intended to be a halfway home between the heavier musket and the lighter arquebusier. The musket even declined in popularity in the mid-1500s due to the decline in armour and the lack of utility for such a heavy, high-powered weapon. Whatever the reason, though, musket began to grow in popularity as a catch-all term for firearms. Adding to the confusion, the term arquebus and musket could be used interchangeably, and the picture was further muddled by the absence of any true regulations during the 1500s which would have stipulated the size and weight of the firearm at hand. It wasn't until the later 1500s that the three broad categories of firearm, the arquebus, caliver and musket, began to settle in, yet even then the terminology varied depending on where one wished to purchase his firearm. We saw in the last episode the Ottoman Tufek had added to the confusion, since different types of Tufek crafted in the sprawling arms factories throughout the Ottoman Empire were bound to make their weapon differently, and depending on the whims of the local commander or the needs of the soldiers and the enemy, these differences grew even further. Thus, while the Tufek defied easy classification as an arquebus, caliber, or musket, Europeans seemed perfectly willing to ignore their own classifications when it suited them to do so. Due to the lack of centralization in firearms production, it was only to be expected that a lack of consistency would be the result. Thus, Maurice of Nassau's additional ruling that the weapons of the Dutch army should be standardized proved to be yet another significant stamp which the Prince of Orange made upon the Dutch military. After extensive testing, they determined upon a single model for muskets and another for arquebuses, and distributed five examples of each to arms producers. The Dutch producers now knew what to make, while the local commanders, theoretically, knew that they would have to train their men in the use of a much smaller pool of firearms than before, which would lead to a greater mastery and understanding of the weapons that they did bring to bear. With their firearms production somewhat more organised, the Dutch were able to effect a dramatic change in their army's training through an important development, that being the military drill manual. Maurice of Nassau, together with Count John II of Nassau, his cousin, were incredibly industrious in their production of the illustrated manual. In 1599, they had secured funds from the States General to equip the entire field army of the Republic with weapons of the same size and calibre, which built upon the progress made in that sphere a few years before. Now the Dutch soldier had only to learn to handle one musket and one arquebus. While this was happening, Count John II of Nassau developed the illustrated manual by painstakingly analysing each movement required to bring the soldier from raising the weapon to making proper use of it. Each movement was illustrated so that not just soldiers but also commanders could learn what the different movement patterns were. By absorbing the orders which were barked at them by their captains, 
Dutch soldiers began to learn from these experiences under the drill and to hone their skills so that handling a pike or a firearm was more a case of hearing an order and then adopting the movement which went along with it. Muscle memory instilled by countless exercises made each one of these admittedly numerous motions easier so that it became less a question of thinking and one merely of reflex while repetition, repetition, repetition did the rest. There were 15 drawings for the pike, 25 for the arquebus and 32 for the musket but all of these movements were learned, rehearsed and rehearsed again so that every man knew, quite literally, where he stood when it came to battle. In 1606-07, these manuals became still more complicated. 32 positions were now available for the pike, and 42 for each of the firearms were drawn up, as the step-by-step guide to bringing your infantry to war was deepened further. Rather than have these books separate, they were compiled into a book published under Count John's supervision, and it was this book published in 1607 in Amsterdam and imaginatively titled Arms Drill with Arquebus, Musket and Pike, that established the idea of the illustrated drill as a Dutch invention. This book was so successful that it went through numerous editions in Dutch, French, German, English, even Danish, and other states pirated and plagiarized different versions of it, and other efforts still were made to improve upon its instructions, but these were largely unimpressive. The Dutch, regardless of what debate exists about their practical influence on the military revolution, whether the military revolution actually existed at all and what influence the Dutch tactics had on the rest of Europe, it cannot be denied that the Dutch were the first European power to properly put the new ideas of the countermarch into action with these books. Now in Dutch armies, the tactic of the mass folly was perfected and could be readily taught to raw recruits thanks to the availability of these manuals and their clear instruction. Dutch soldiers would fire by rank, then walk to the back of their unit and reload, just as William Lodewijk and Maurice of Nassau's studies had aimed for. This development was profound in terms of its impact on other European states, but as we have learned in previous episodes, and as we'll see in the future, it wasn't as simple a case as Michael Roberts suggested in his original theories on the military revolution. The idea that the Dutch made it to the tactic of mass volley fire, and the use of only a few select firearms before everyone else, and that they subsequently infected the rest of Europe with their ideas, ideas which were perfected by the likes of Gustavus Adolphus a generation later, is a key founding pillar of the military revolution idea. As is the notion that before this change came about, European armies fought one another in far less flexible, imaginative or professionalised battles. Pikes, muskets, arquebuses and cannons all did the rounds for sure, but they were not properly integrated together, nor were the men who held these weapons trained for particularly long periods before marching off to battle with them. The innovation of the drill was found in the idea that by making a man repeat the same action with his peers time and again, you could get him used to the required movement to the point that he wouldn't even have to think and that he could march into the jaws of death with only the commands of his officer in his ears for comfort. As long as he had his orders, he was safe. It is certainly true that the drill book took on a life of its own in the later 17th century, with Louis XIV's armies making particular use of it, as we've seen. Yet it is also the case that the Dutch were not the first to drill their men. Geoffrey Parker has pointed out that the Spanish Turquios of the 16th century were professionalised by repeated training regimens, which granted them a formidable reputation. 
John A. Lynn has underlined the idea that the French made use of the drill as well, and that they were encouraged by the Dutch example, rather than inspired to drop everything and follow it. Kind of like when you ask your friend how they're doing in an exam, and since they have the same answers as you, you feel more confident. Yes, yes, it's perfectly legal, trust me. Further afield, in Japan for instance, where our story began for this episode, the appearance of drill manuscripts, rather than the kind of thick manuals seen in Europe, did the rounds, and the same concepts made their presence felt in these written works as were felt in the Dutch versions. Again, it has to be emphasised how out there it is that the island of samurai swords, such as Japan has always imagined, was the first to experiment with the mass volley fire and fire by rank ideas which made their way to Europe a generation later, and which profoundly affected how military affairs developed up to the present day. One question which must be addressed then is why, if the Japanese were so innovative in developing the mass volley idea, did the Japanese then fall behind the West in terms of technological sophistication? Why, for instance, did the samurai culture persist in Japan at the expense of the advancement of firearms technology? What made the Japanese less patient with the weapons than the Europeans were? As it happened, the issue was as much about a lack of patience as it was a lack of expertise. Much of Japan's neighbours lack native production facilities for these firearms, at least on the scale of the Europeans and thus trade was essential at first to acquire the necessary materials to continue with production. The Japanese, like the Chinese and Koreans, also had to contend with some fearsome horse archers in their travels, and this led them to expect a great deal from the musket, that it would be the replacement for the bow that had served them for so long. A great deal of respect for archers existed in Japanese society, as the archers had to be highly mobile individual fighters, especially if mounted and it was their mission to hit a target at the longest distance with the most accuracy possible. Musketeers were expected to do the same, since they were expected to compete with the archers that had come before. After some impressive showings initially, most notably at Nagashino in 1575, when those 3,000 musketeers annihilated a far larger force, expectations were set impossibly high in Japan, and manuscripts were drawn up to teach the novice. The problems inherent in the high Japanese expectations of the musket were felt almost immediately. This is noted by the historian Harold Kleinschmidt in his article examining the spread of firearms throughout the world and the increased popularity of the drill to go along with them. Kleinschmidt recorded the high expectations of the Japanese, saying, Descriptions showed individual arquebusiers who were expected to shoot with the same degree of precision as archers and who had to be able to fire from a variety of standing, sitting, crouching and lying positions. These positions were prescribed without concern for technical features, such as the kick of the weapon, which might have injured the men or at least would have made it difficult for them to shoot accurately. Likewise, men were expected to have ample time for loading and adjusting the firearms. Such high expectations were impossible to meet, and the reality, which was far less impressive than had been hoped for, was in the end judged to not be worth it, as Harold Kleinschmidt continues. The social cost of the deployment of the portable firearms seems to have been considered too high in Japan, for, after extensive use of portable firearms for about two generations in the 16th century, they were banned from the arsenals. Manual drill continued at a few places and firearms were still used as hunting weapons as late as in the 18th century. Likewise, cannons and mortars were still being cast in the 17th century. But these continuities only confirm that 
patterns of constrained behavior did not then emerge as integral parts of the Japanese way of fighting, and thus it made little sense to keep portable firearms in continuing use. Since we started our episode with the Japanese and Dutch examples, it only feels right to also end with them. There is a great deal more which can be said about the drill, as well as its social impact on the peoples of Europe. By now we have learned that it is important not to generalise the significance or spread of these reforms in military thinking, especially since they had yet to really make their mark. Earlier in this episode, you'll recall that I mentioned that the Dutch army were marching towards a certain danger, a big test of everything that they had learned. This test was to be the Battle of Newport in July 1600, and it represented, in many respects, the first true test of the new tactics of properly enforced mass musket volley drills in the Western world. After six years of practice, Maurice of Nassau and William Lodwick were about to see if all those years of planning, reading, studying and practicing had paid off. Next time, We'll open with this battle to give you a glimpse of warfare at the turn of the 17th century and see how these two very different battle systems, the Spanish Turkios on the one hand and the drilled Dutch soldiery on the other, fared when they smacked into each other in the sands of Flanders. I hope you'll join me for that history, friends, but until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 7 of the 30 Years War series on 17th century warfare. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.